Well, the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. Good job. First service knew it too. So that's exciting. Um, well, my name is Andrew Bullock. I want to welcome you to Dallas Church today. Thanks for being here on Palm Sunday and, for many of us, the last day of spring break. So it's a good day to be together and worship Jesus. It is interesting to me how many phrases we have um, that are basically just all around the question, are you the real deal? Are you for real? We ask people this question, right? And, and we hear this, we say this, we're like, okay, we know actions speak louder than words. There was one time I was helping someone move, and I was moving with a man who was older than me. He was not an old man, right? But he was older than me. And we go over to pick up this like giant, I don't even remember if it was a dresser or an entertainment center or what it was, but we go over to pick this thing up um, and I'm like 20 and stupid. So I walk up and get in the position and I'm just ready to gung-ho get doing it. And he goes, hang on, young man, do not write checks that your body cannot cash. And so then we got two other guys, we lifted the thing, we moved it into the truck. It was okay, all right? No one was harmed in the making of this. There's one time I'm having coffee with someone, and um, I, I think this person was probably for real, but have you ever noticed that like after about the third or fourth name drop, you stop believing them when they're like, well, and then I went and hung out with this person. I'm like, really? Are you... Are you for real? Are you sure? And then, like, later in the conversation, he's like, yeah, so then at 2 a.m., Obama calls me. And I'm like, hang, hang on. Wait a minute. And, and I actually do think this guy was probably actually that cool. I had a boss, and his um, advice to me, and he was telling me, he's like, Andrew, we got to make sure that we under-promise and over deliver. Because I have, just as a personal weakness, I have the gift of gab, and I am really good at talking myself into situations that I then have a problem getting myself out of. Because I'm like, it's going to be great, guys. Totally we can do that. So much fun. Well, when we come to church, and when we look at the Bible, maybe you start asking yourself, okay, is, is Jesus for real? Is he the real deal? And what, what we're going to talk about today is really in the flow of the book of Matthew. We just got done with the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to pat yourself on the back, good job, guys. We made it through. Um, this is the very last episode of the series two in the book of Matthew. And what did Jesus just do in the Sermon on the Mount? What he did is he walked up to every bar that had been set in terms of what it means to be the people of God and to be a good human on this earth. And Jesus like walks up to every bar and just raises it all the way up, right? And, and, and if you think about this, imagine if, like, if we could just delete all of the things you know about Jesus or what you expect to be said from church. Imagine if I got up here and I was like, okay, everybody, I'm going to tell you about what the key to life is. We're going to be poor in spirit. We're going to be depressed. We're going to be persecuted. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> and you look at me and you're like, what? Because when you make bold claims, you got to back it up. And what we're going to look at today, if you've got a Bible, go ahead, open to Matthew chapter 8. Because 
What Matthew is going to do as he records the story of Jesus' life is he's going to give us the evidence. He's going to show us how does Jesus back this up. So let's go ahead. We're going to pray as we open God's word. And I'm going to take a page out of Pastor Ben's playbook. We're going to take just one deep kind of cleansing, relaxing breath. Maybe let all the stress of what's going on this week, things you're worried about for tomorrow. Just let that go aside and let's see what God would have for us. Okay, here we go. Father God, we love you, and we know that you love us. God, we pray that your spirit would say something through your word that moves us closer to you. Jesus, show us this week the many ways that you are for real and that we can trust you and follow you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Jesus, he's, he's speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, right? And then he comes down the mountain. And everybody is astonished. Verse uh, 28 of chapter 7, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as one of their scribes. Because when, when I stand up and I teach the Bible to you, like I'm going back to the text, right? I'm throwing out a verse, and when rabbis would teach, right, they're throwing out other rabbis, they're throwing out verses from scripture, and Jesus is like not giving a sermon on the word of God, Jesus is giving a sermon as the word of God. And these people say, well, this guy's for real, we got to follow him, he's really impressive. And so then he came down the mountain, and great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him, and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will you can make me clean. You guys did exactly what first service did when I read that. Nobody's jaw hit the floor, right? Nobody got all huffy and was like, no, that can't happen. Because you guys, and it's not your fault, like you're 21st century Americans, right? That's, there's nothing you can do about that. You cannot change the century that you were born in, okay? But if you were a first century Jewish person, in the, the, just the cultural context that Jesus grew up in, you would be freaking out right now. Because a, a leper, a person with leprosy, which when we say leprosy, we mean a very specific skin disease. Um, for them, that was kind of a junk drawer of lots of different terms, anything that would go on the skin. And this is a very long um, rabbit trail that I'm just going to zip drive down. Um, because I'm sure that you guys don't want to hear a two-hour lecture on um, ancient skin diseases. Because when I was listening to a lecture on ancient skin diseases, I was like, this is really weird. So, but uh, if we could zip drive it down, in the book of Leviticus, right, in the tradition and the story of God's people, the, the idea of leprosy or this kind of skin disease was used in ritual purity. And it was used in a sense where God was teaching Israel about just how holy and separate and different he was than the mess of everyday life. And he was trying to explain to them. And, and they had like portions of the temple you could not go into. Holy people, God's people, special people. They could not interact with some of this ritual impurity. And if you did 
come in contact with it, you had all these steps that you had to do to get back to cleanliness. Now, we don't have a very good framework for what that means or looks like in our world. Um, and so I'm going to take some page out of the playbook of Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. So I'm not smart enough to come up with this on my own, but I'm going to steal from the people that are smart, because that's how I do things. Now, um, he has this analogy. He talks about what is the holiest place in the modern scientific mind of today? What is the holiest place in our community? The place that is the most separate, it is the most cleansed, and only the super, super special people can go in there? Well, obviously, it's the surgery operating room. Think about that for a second. The surgery operating room. Now, imagine I told you a story where there is a surgeon, and he's like the best surgeon. He's like the best healer. And he's getting ready to go into this operating room, and they have sterilized, they have cleansed, they have done everything that needed to be done to all of the instruments. He's all scrubbed in. He's ready to go. And then someone with a cold walks up to this guy. And I'm talking like a real bad cold. I have a toddler at my house. I don't even have to go any farther. You guys know what's happening here, right? Like, they're just snot everywhere. And it's a weird day when I say snot from the stage. But, like, so this, so this friend walks up to this surgeon, and it's just blah, right? And he walks up to the surgeon, and what's the surgeon supposed to do, right? He's supposed to be like, no, get away from me. No, like, you have to stay over there. But what does Jesus do? Verse 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. So imagine in this story, the surgeon bear hugs the friend with a cold. Yeah, oh, I love that. That's exactly right. That's the right emotion. Ugh. Right? You're like, I do not want to be the open heart patient that is right after this. That is not what I want to be. But that's what Jesus does. And he touches the leper and he says, I will. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The guy gets healed. Jesus can back it up. See, now this is why I would be a very bad surgeon if I did that, right? But imagine in this story, what if as the surgeon bear hugs the guy, his symptoms are gone. And the surgeon doesn't get the runny nose. He doesn't get the symptoms. Because what happens in this moment is that the holiness, the otherness, the specialness, right, of Jesus, it transfers to this guy instead of the other way around. Because for their entire culture, for like the entire framework that they would have, they would have said that the holy person, uh-oh, the person who's separate or different or out of the mess, the mess is going to transfer to them. And this is just a beautiful picture of what God does. Because God comes into our mess and he brings his holiness, his completeness, his put togetherness. And so this is a very weird way for Matthew, who is a first century Jewish author, to try to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah from the rest of the Old Testament. And then, of course, you know what would be even weirder is if Jesus talked to a centurion. Hey, look, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, 
a centurion came forward appealing to him. Now, okay, once again, nobody's shocked, nobody's gasping, right? Because we just expect Jesus rides on donkeys, talks to lepers, talks to centurions. That's how he does things. <laughs> but for real, you're not supposed to do that. And so the centurion, which you got to think about, who is Rome in that moment? Like they are the mafia run by the government. They are an oppressive force that has come in. They are grinding the Jewish people into poverty with their taxes. They are imposing cultural values that the Jewish people did not share. And the centurion, he comes up to Jesus and he says to him, he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. And what Jesus is supposed to say is good for you. Because God's supposed to have judgment on the bad guys. But what Jesus says to him, and this is when, like, if I'm part of Jesus' disciple PR group, I'm like, Jesus, no, don't say that. He looks at him, he says, I will come and heal him. And once again, he's like, well, I'm just going to go into the mess, into the place where I'm not supposed to be. Because if you were a Jewish rabbi or a holy person, if you were special, if you were set apart, you were not supposed to go into the Gentile house. And Jesus says, yep, I'll go there. And the centurion replied, he said, Lord, I'm not worthy to see you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, here's what I think is interesting about this. And as I meditate on this passage, I am impressed by the fact that Rome and what this guy represents is one of the only empires or power structures in that world where they were in charge before they even showed up. Because the Roman legion was powerful. They were taking over the world, right? When we hear James Bond villains that are like, I'm going to take over the world, we're like, yeah, you can't do it. They had done it. And when they would go places, like the authority of Rome went forward. And this guy looks at Jesus and he says, I get it. Jesus, I know that you are in charge before you even walk into the room. I know where a real sense and source of power comes from. And Jesus marvels at this, right? This is, this is Jesus was surprised. I love all the ways that the Bible translators try to translate this, and I feel like all of them fall short, right? Because if you told me something really surprising, I was like, I marvel at that. You'd be like, no, you really don't. But, <laughs> but Jesus, he's shocked. And you think about that, like, you got to wake up pretty early to surprise God. And that's what this guy does. He, he shocks Jesus because Jesus says, truly, I tell you, no one in Israel, none of these people have I found such faith. And I tell you the truth. He says, many will come from the east and the west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, once again, this is a very long rabbit trail that I am resisting the urge to go down, but I'll just zip drive it for us because it is easy, and I have, I've done this, as I've read the story of the Bible, I've been like, okay, God, so what about everybody else who's not Jewish? 
right? Like I'm reading, like, you know, God comes down to Mount Sinai with Moses, and he talks about his people. And it is very easy, and especially if we read it with 21st century American eyes, it is easy for us to maybe think that God sees the rest of the world in, I don't know, like whatever we would want to fill in the blank, right, as not valuable. Like God is working in these, the super cool, the remnant, the special people. But what I love is from the very, 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 very beginning, before there was even a Jewish faith, God looked at Abraham and he said, my plan is to bless the world through you. My plan is to bless the world. And I love moments like when the Assyrian general Naaman comes to the prophet Elisha. And he's from a faraway country and he says, I need God to do something for me. And he gets cleansed. And when we look at the story of Jonah, where God takes a prophet and says, you're going to go once again to the Assyrians, the bad guys, the people that are not supposed to be here. I want you to go there. And when Israel goes into exile in Babylon, God doesn't say, well, just, you know, grab the Bible and hang on to it like a life jacket and try to survive. He says, seek the good of the city. And so I think about, like, these are moments where God is just kind of pulling back the curtain for his whole plan all along, which if we look at the end of the book of Revelation, it's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And how cool will it be when everyone, right, is brought together and we look over and we say, oh, I I tried to draw lines and I'm really surprised those people are here. But how cool will it be? Because our God, he includes everybody. And I think, I think as Dallas Church, like we need to be the kind of people where we're almost like, you know, the waiter at the fancy restaurant with the towel like across the arm. And we're like, here, come sit here. Like we have a place for you because that's what God does is he's like, I've got a place at this table. I've got a place in this family. And that is hard because we just have this human urge to draw lines and to say, well, those people on that side of whatever line I drew, those people who think different from me, those people, any moment, like we use those people, we're not living out this kingdom ideal. And Jesus says, this guy gets it. And so Jesus said, go and it will be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And so Jesus backs it up. He's the real deal. Now, we've talked about social outcasts like lepers and centurions. So let's talk about mother-in-laws. Because the next thing that's going to happen, and I love, my mother-in-law is awesome. So I got, I got zero complaints right here. But, um, but Jesus goes back to Peter's house. And, and I've been to Capernaum where the site of Peter's house probably was. And what they did is they built this like multi-million dollar facility with a glass bottom that you can like walk across and just marvel at how cool it is. That's not what it looked like when Jesus was there. It was a peasant fisherman's house. Like it, it's pretty small. It's in the everyday life. And I think that's important because Jesus shows up in the everyday life. And Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose 
and began to serve him. Now, do you see how genius Matthew is right now? What was he just talking about? He's talking about the banquet that God sits at, and now we're talking about a banquet that God is sitting at. And in the everyday, in just the simple act of making dinner, Peter's mother-in-law is living out that idea. And so I think there's an encouragement to us, because maybe you're thinking like, okay, I'm not, as a surgeon, going to go hug everyone with a cold. Like, that's not my mission or my plan. But maybe God has put people in your path. Maybe you've got an opportunity right in the middle of your everyday life because, and then it goes on from there, that Jesus heals people who were sick. He casts out the demons because this is to fulfill God's plan in the prophet Isaiah that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases because this is what we believe. This is what we rally around is that we're a mess and that God comes into that mess. And we want to be people that run towards the mess. Like we want to be in the mess and let God and his spirit and his presence inside of us to fix what's broken. And this is what Jesus does in the everyday because this was always the mission. Now, these people see that. And so then a scribe comes up to Jesus. And when you hear scribe, right, you have to think, Bible nerd like Andrew, right? Just think about that every time, like Bible nerd like Andrew. If you see a scribe, because this guy, right, he graduated, he's got degrees, he knows the Bible in and out. And, and so the scribe comes up to him and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And he says, Jesus, I'm in. Let's do this thing. And Jesus says, no, you're not. No, you're not. He looks at him and he says, foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we've already established the kingdom of God is awesome, and it is going somewhere. And Jesus says, this train is bound for glory, so you got to get on and strap in, because it's going to be a rough ride. And, and that's something that I think this is a struggle as 21st century Americans, because we want smooth seas right? We want the struggle to not be hard. We love the fact that when you follow Jesus, there is just wisdom that is built into the earth where you don't have certain struggles. There are some ways that following Jesus allows us to circumnavigate all kinds of pain, but it is a high cost. It is a high calling because what have we said? Every time there's a bar, what does Jesus walk up to it? And he raises it all the way up. There was a disciple who comes up, another disciple, and he says, Lord, let me follow you, but first, let me go and bury my father. Now, if that's on your to-do list, please get it done, right? Like, if that's, if that's sitting there. But this is a picture of priorities, and Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you step out on this plan, if you're really in on this thing, you can put on the jersey, you got to play the game. You got to show up for practice. Like you got to you got to do the stuff. Like you got to be here and be in it. And we could talk about what culturally was going on with this dude. It's possible that maybe what he was saying was Jesus um, let me wait until my father dies. Like his father's perfectly healthy and sitting there, but he's like let me wait until I'm the patriarch of my family 
and I get to make the decisions. Jesus, let me wait until I'm there. Or, I mean, it could just be literal. Like, he's got something to do, and Jesus uses this teaching moment to reframe the priorities. Our staff has been um, studying and really inspired by the way that people are making disciples in other cultures. And we've been kind of going on a deep dive together, and what's interesting is as we study, like we look at these um, church planters, disciple makers in India, and they all work full-time jobs, right? They all have families. They pray for like two hours a day. They're serving people where they live. And then I think about my life, and I'm like, ugh, two services. <laughs> ugh. Jesus, do I really have to do this every single day? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's what we said. When we follow Jesus, he took the bar. He raised it up. You're going to go to your job Monday, right, through Friday, whatever day you work. You're on the mission field. Jesus has the jersey on you. We're not, you're not waiting to get ordained. Like, you're already in ministry. You're already on a mission. And so let's do it. Let's pray for our coworkers. Let's be ready to invite people over to have dinner and to maybe ask the awkward question about where they're at spiritually and be able to maybe risk some of that, like, oh my goodness, I might be embarrassed. There are much worse things, right? Like, I get, I get paid to be embarrassed. I'm a youth pastor, right? That's, that's what I do. But we, we got something to do, guys. And it's not always smooth sailing. Huh, here we go. Verse 23. So then he gets in the boat, and his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. So the disciples, they get in the boat. Maybe you've heard this. Can we try and delete the Sunday school picture from our brain where we're like, oh yeah, this is what Jesus does. He gets in boats and then storms arise. Because every time Jesus is sleeping on a boat, there's a storm. Like that's, well, let's, let's think about this for a minute. You're one of the disciples and you go out on the lake with Jesus and there's these huge swells. Now we've got, we got some, some fishermen in our church that like go out on the ocean and they keep saying they're gonna get me out there with them someday and maybe I will, but right now, I'm going to let them see the 20-foot swells or whatever goes on out there because it, it's scary. Anybody been in a situation where you thought the boat would sink? Whoa! Because the reality is there's, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You're at the mercy of this, and in the imagination of the first-century mind, the ocean was like the most powerful untamable thing they could ever think of. There was actually a Roman emperor who decided that he was going to make war on the ocean, which I'm really interested how you did that. But he did because he was trying to say, I rule everything. Can you imagine if I gave you the assignment and I was like, I need you to control the internet? Anybody get a little anxiety about that? How would you even do that? I don't even know. I don't even know. And I'm like, okay, so it's very simple. What you're going to do 
is you're going to tell the stock market what to do. You can't do that. We are at the mercy of these forces. You think about the weather. Uh, there's just like, so I was at the Grand Canyon this week, and I had planned a spring break vacation for my family. It was 30 degrees and snowing. It's March. What's going on? But there are all these things that we just have no control over. We just live in it. And so the disciples, they're in this boat, and the waves are so high, and they wake Jesus up. They say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. That's Bible for we are scared spitless, right? Like we are terrified. They think they're going to die. And Jesus says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And he stands up. He rebukes the winds and the seas, and there's a great calm. And the men, once again, we need a better word than this, but they marveled, right? They were shocked and surprised. And Jesus' closest friends go, who are you? What kind of man is this? Because in their imagination, in the first century imagination, this is what Jesus is doing, okay? Okay? He is unequivocally declaring himself God in this moment. He is unequivocally declaring himself God because I want you to think about the time when God's people had their backs against an ocean and they didn't know which way to go. They had an army coming at them and at the very, very beginning, the bedrock of this whole thing, Pharaoh is chasing the Israelites and they go to an ocean and the way that they would poetically talk about this in the Psalms is that God rebukes the waves and parts the sea for them. Do you see what's going on here? I'm getting like Bible nerd tingles. This is so great. Like Jesus is declaring he is the creator God. He is the personal God that met Israel and called them out into something new. And that stands against any powers in the world that would say otherwise. Because what happens right next this is the last story. I know it's like boom, 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 boom. But that's not my fault. That's Matthew's. That's how he did this. Okay. So then verse 28, he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. And two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass this way. Now this... This is kind of scary. Like, this is, this is Jesus' literally an exorcist moment. Like, I'm not even hyperbole. That's what's going on right now. And Jesus meets these demon-possessed men, and they cry out. And I don't think it's the men, because this sounds like the spiritual beings that are living in them. It says, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They look at Jesus, they say, you are early. That's the weirdest interaction I've ever, like, witnessed. Like, the demons are like, no, we know that you're in charge. We know that we have an expiration date on this. And what are you doing here before the time? And, and I can just tell you, like, I, I take this type of stuff very seriously. Because as someone who tries to live their life on the front lines of spiritual warfare, 
um, there are things that I just, I have no desire to mess with. Like there are, there are movies, there are like, you know, just practices and things that I just have a sensitivity in my soul. And I have seen things that I can't really comprehend because I believe that there is more to this world than just what we see and touch. And I don't think all the powers out there in the world are benevolent. And maybe you've experienced that. Like maybe you've experienced generational darkness that comes from sin, that comes from dark powers. And as we look out at our world, like there are things, there are regions where there are just, it seems to be, there's, there's battles taking place. There are places where darkness rules. And what does Jesus do? He shows up and he brings light and freedom. He brings light and freedom. And here's, here's the shift I'm trying to make because I was raised to be very careful of the spiritual world. And I'm trying to make a shift where I lean on Jesus's authority. And I say, I'm safe. I'm okay. Because I know the one who gets to bring freedom into this situation. Because here's, here's what Jesus does. Now, the demons beg him to cast them into this herd of pigs that are next to, next to them. And Jesus does. He says, go into the pigs. And the pigs all run into the ocean and they drown. And I grew up on this in Sunday school, so I really just kind of breeze past this without just thinking, how awful is this right now? Like you've got lots of animals, like life and, and death and the water's all bubbling up and that's ah, crazy. But that's the picture that we get of what darkness does in human life. And then after seeing this, what do the people of the region do? They say, Jesus, would you please go away? They ask Jesus to leave. Which is interesting because he's just brought freedom. Like he just saved them from these bad guys that were harassing the town. But these people, when they see Jesus bring freedom, they know that the implications are just so big for their life that they say, I'm just not ready for it. I don't want it. Jesus, I'm going to let you go to the other side of the ocean because I don't want this right now. And so what do these stories teach us? What do these stories teach us about God? I think ultimately, Jesus is the solution to the whole like, gamut of human problems. Because as I've said, like, nobody's going to argue with me when I'm like, I am a mess. Right? And Dallas Church, like we would say, we'd look at our lives and we'd be like, I am a mess. And if you're not going to raise your hand with that with me, like you're lying, right? I know, there's some areas. And we believe, like I've seen it happen, that Jesus brings light and life and hope into all the areas of my life. And that doesn't mean that everything's fixed and hunky dory in the minute. But I have decided I'm going to dedicate my life to helping people follow Jesus because here's what I know about all the problems in our world, right? When people follow Jesus, you name it, you pull out the list, right? Children are taken care of, right? Women are respected. Men have purpose and dignity. Human flourishing happens. If our whole world would just follow Jesus, all the problems go away. And that's what this, these stories are showing 
is that the hope of Jesus brings life into every area. He brings ritual cleansing to the leper. He brings inclusion to the centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and everybody else in their everyday lives. He gives the scribe and the disciple an adventure to follow after. And so if life doesn't feel adventurous enough for you, maybe you should pray more. No joke. He gives the disciples calming in the storm. He gives freedom from dark powers. And so my question for us is, what is our response to who that is? Who Jesus has just shown himself to be. What's your response? Because the, the guys on the other side of the lake, they say, Jesus, I'm not ready for it. The scribe says, I'm not ready to go all in. That scares me. Peter's mother-in-law gets up and starts serving and starts being a part of this thing. What's the response? Because I think, I think that many of us, if you look back on your life, you can see how God is calling you closer to him. Um, there are some ways in which it doesn't make any sense that I like, grew up to be someone who followed Jesus. Because when I was in my teenage years, I felt like I had every reason to throw this thing out. I know so many people who grew up, they walked with me through that season, they walked with me through very similar experiences, and they have big struggles with the church. And they have big struggles with the fact that like, from that place where I got hurt, that Jesus is gonna give me life. And my story is that like God's call on my heart through the, all of those moments, all of those seasons was so strong that I had to say just what the disciples said later when Jesus was like, are you going to leave me too? And, and I had to say, where else is their life? Where else am I going to find this? And so I'd invite you to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father God. Be here for us. God, give us a mission to run after. God, heal our hearts with your presence in the broken spots where we need forgiveness, where we need love. God, we worship you because in those moments we become whole. God, I pray and I declare and I just say, Jesus, in your name, you have authority over this group of people, over this church family, and the darkness that surrounds us, God, we rebuke it and send it away because we love you. Jesus, help us to follow you. Amen.